The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is sponsored by Husqvarna, leaders in lawn and garden equipment. Husqvarna, ready when you are. Welcome to So Grow Repeat. I'm Alice Fowler. And I'm Jane Perone. If you're a new listener, welcome. It's great to have you along. And if you've been here since episode one, on tomatoes, thanks for sticking with us. This week, we've decided to do something a little different for the last of the current series of So Grow Repeat. So we will bring you an Ask Alice special. Now, here's the setup. For those who aren't familiar with Ask Alice, every Saturday, Alice answers questions from readers of her column in Guardian Weekend magazine. They vary from the straightforward, should I add charcoal to my soil, to the weird, why is my green Bramley apple tree producing red fruit, to the downright exasperated. And anyone who listened to our last podcast on pets and gardening will know that most of these questions revolve around how to deter cats from pooing in vegetable beds. There are always lots more questions than I have space to answer in the magazine, so we thought we'd devote a whole episode of So Grow Repeat to tackling some of your thorniest problems. And to add a twist to the usual format, we've roped in three guests to help Alice provide the most holistic solutions to those vexed gardening problems, because as we all know, not everything can be solved with a dash of fertiliser or a few snips with the secateurs. So joining me on the panel are the philosopher, writer and podcaster Nigel Warburton and actor, writer and recovering stand-up comedian Paddy C. Courtney. Nigel is interviewer for the popular Philosophy Bites podcast and his books include A Little History of Philosophy. Paddy hung up his microphone for the last time in 2011 and picked up a garden fork for the first time. He grows his own fruit and vegetables on a small allotment in his village outside of Dublin. He says he has no idea what he's doing, but he loves doing it. And finally, James Alexander Sinclair, who some of you will recognise as the posh bloke of the Great Chelsea Garden Challenge, but he's also a brilliant garden designer in his own right. Welcome to you all, and let's kick off with our first question, which comes from Bess Bowen. She says, I recently put a contract on a house in Portland, Oregon. When I stopped by today, I was stunned to see the entire yard is covered in horsetail. It's coming up through the deck, stairs and front brick walkway. Would you buy a house with one third of an acre covered in this weed? That's frightening, isn't it? That's pr- does everyone does everyone recognise this weed we're talking about? This sort of prehistoric looking green uh, weed that seems indestructible. I do. <laughs> I, well, I, I do in Ireland. I, I, we suffered it here in our little courtyard um, many years ago. But um, just listening to what she said there, Beth said that... Um, OK, I'm coming from her email from an alternative angle, but uh, she mentions that she put a contract out on a house in Oregon and there's talk of horsetail. So <laughs> if, you know, if there's horsetail, there's obviously going to be horse head. So if I'm reading between the lines right, I don't think the local mafia want her to buy that uh, house. Mm. So I'd say now, Beth, get out. <laughs> get out now. My, my house, when I bought my house, I went straight out. I didn't even look in the interior. I went out. It had a beautiful back garden, southwest facing. It was everything I wanted. So we put money on immediately just because I like the garden. And then when I came back, I found that there was loads and loads and loads of um, shingle everywhere and then a really thick layer of weed-suppressing membrane. And I thought, oh, well, this is not a good sign. I pulled back the weed-suppressing membrane and the whole thing was mare's tail. And so, so I have bought that house. Okay, so what, what did you do? 
What did I do? <laughs> did you still? Did you go? You went ahead. You yeah, went yeah, ahead. Yeah, I, I own the house. You sold it to Beth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nigel, step in here and give us a give us a philosopher's take on this. Well, look, everyone's got a horsetail story by the sound of it, because I used to have a an allotment which suffered from horsetail, and I dug about maybe four or five feet down just to see how far down it went. It was still alive down there. And some of it, amazingly, was green, which seemed to defy everything I knew about photosynthesis. So this is a pretty difficult problem. Or is it? Because, I mean, the assumption is that it's a bad thing, that it's a weed. But it's an amazing plant. It's actually quite beautiful. It's really succulent green when it comes up and and, and actually is exposed to the, the sunlight. And uh, as someone's already mentioned, it's got a prehistoric past. This is a plant which has survived longer than the dinosaurs, for sure. So my take on it would be, like, couldn't you see it under a different aspect? Couldn't you just see this as an amazing historic plant and go for it? Because you're not going to beat it. Why not just let it flourish? This is an amazing thing. Get some dinosaur models, have a kind of Jurassic Park in your back garden. It would be amazing. <laughs> James, have you ever had any gardens with a, with a serious horsetail problem to deal with? Many times. Many times you sort of come across this thing. And part of it, you walk into the, and your heart sinks because you know perfectly well this is going to be an endless question. People are going to say, what do I do about the horsetail? And then pe- people's mothers come along and say, oh, you've got horsetail in your garden. And they ring in a panic as well. But I had, I had one garden where there were two fields, one we called the Mankey Field, and one was called the not so manky field, which sort of gives you an impression of what quality of agricultural land we were dealing with. It used to be actually interesting. It used to be a walnut plantation where they used to grow walnut for veneers. It was very wet and very nasty, soggy ground. Uh, and there was, there was uh, horsetail everywhere. Horsetail, however, when it is growing underwater, becomes mare's tail. So we dug a large lake, and that large lake now has as a rather gorgeous margin around it in which ducks nestle and fish play. So it's, it's sort of using a disadvantage to an advantage. But in order to do that, you have to have enough room to, to build a great big enormous lake. <laughs> so, so she has two choices. She can buy the house or build a lake. Yeah. Well, then, could I ask the question then, what is so bad about horsetail? if it was to grow like does it take over does it attack young children uh, <laughs> it, it, it would it will take over but it's not impossible to eradicate it but you can definitely beat it into submission by understanding two things about it first of all it's got really really long deep roots that can go down to at least 25 feet but because it's a very sort of basic prehistoric plant it actually does need a lot of sunlight to do well and so if you plant up your garden with lots of really big leaved plants and lots of kind of rich herbaceous stuff what you'll find is that it will only pop up between the plants because it can't actually you know it can't take the shade competition and then you can just constantly keep pulling it now you'll never get rid of it but you will weaken it to the point where it's no longer kind of uh cramping your style i suppose and is it like sort of ground elder and it's one of those things you can kind of oh and actually it's edible so there's a benefit there or is there anything you can do with your your horsetail cuttings you can put horsetail in with your comfrey to and it makes a sort of basic fungicide it was traditionally used for cleaning pots and it's still very good for cleaning pots if you're ever camping and it buffs your nails rather nicely you often see it on banks of um, railways you know and you'll go through and you'll just see this massive bank of it and it looks quite it looks quite beautiful actually and then you'll see it suddenly stops and what's happened is that there's either trees or there's big butter burr or something else there and because it's shading it it won't do so well so the trick is to get on and shade it out as quickly as possible see my take on this was that you need a lesson from Machiavelli. You don't leave wounded animals. You don't try and defeat somebody by half defeating them. You have to actually go for it or else they come back even stronger. Uh, 
you would have to nu- to get rid of it you'd have to nuke your soil and then you wouldn't have a garden so i think you have to sort of learn to live with it a bit you can't just keep hoeing it yeah but you you have to hoe it before it gets too big i think it's about sort of you know it gets beyond a couple of inches high it's 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 sort of woken up but if you just keep keep at it and keep at it it's, it's, it's a sort of it's a process of attrition. It's, it's something that would, would, would be set as a punishment for somebody who had a very bad life when they got to Hades. <laughs> well, you say that. Is this, there's another take on that as well, because obviously Albert Camus had this notion that, you know, the reason why we shouldn't commit suicide is because we are like Sisyphus rolling this huge rock up the mountain only for it to roll back down again each time. And this perpetual toil seems like a bad thing from a, uh, another viewpoint. But actually, in Camus' view, we have to imagine that Sisyphus was quite happy with his predicament. It's actually the struggle that it, that makes life feel worthwhile. This is the point of life, that you have a bit of a struggle. If it's all too easy, you just press a button and there's no horsetail, you wouldn't really have much of a life. Wow, that escalated pretty quickly from horsetail to suicide, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not that bad, it's a weed, just let it go. <laughs> well, is it a weed? That's an interesting question. I think it's 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 more than a weed. It's, it's something almost uh, supernatural in the way that it's, got a capacity to regenerate itself you can probably take a great kind of zen lesson from it can't you by going and sort of looking at it as not your problem but something that can teach you about well, gardening it won't be Beth's problem if she doesn't buy that house so um, I well think, yeah. i think you know what i would do initially is i would buy a lawnmower and i would mow it and mow it and mow it, and mow it because that's the quickest way to get rid of it See, I'd knock the price down. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. Well, Bess, we want to hear what you end up doing. Have you bought the house? Are you going to buy the house? We'll bring you an update on that uh, via Twitter when we can. Uh, And on to the next question. Lucy Garden, appropriately, she has a question about her fruit trees. Hi, Lucy. Hi there. I have a mulberry tree that has never fruited, and it's about 10 years old by now. And an apple, I think it's Pixie Ross side, is one of those with red flesh that flowered when I first got it from the grower about four years ago, but has never had blossomed since then. Um, I've got other fruit trees in the garden, apples, pears, cherry plum, apricot, and they all do all right. My soil's heavy clay, so what do I need to do? Do I need to feed these two plants, water them more, speak sharply to them, or what do you advise? Does anyone want to start us off on this one? Well, first of all, I think I'm <laughs> intimidated by somebody by the name of Garden coming on asking <laughs> for answers. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel in trouble here. I, I think I, I'm not I'm not a, a proper gardener per se, but um, I would pop back to the other fruit trees and ask them how you are treating them so well enough that they fruit and then go back and offer that advice to your mulberry and pixie rosa. Ah, I can try, try that, yes. It's actually good advice because what is happening in your garden is on one half or in one part of your garden, something's working really well for you. And in your other part, there isn't. And so you have to say what's changed between those two conditions. Well, so, I should say that the, the most of the trees that are fruiting are really old trees okay. that were here when we first came to the garden. The um, uh, apricot is a new one that I've had in not so long, and that's, that's doing fine. So I'm doing the right thing for the apricot, and then the others I inherited. But the mulberry and the pixie rosa apple are ones I've put in myself. And where exactly have you put them? Um, well, the, the apricot and the pixie rosa are both quite near a eucalyptus. So that's why I wondered if that might be a bit dry. But the apricot seems to like it. Yeah, the apricot will love that because apricot's natural conditions are very free-draining, very baked places. So that, mm-hmm. that has no issue whatsoever. But yeah. the apple might find it a bit dry, do you think? The apple might be finding it a bit dry and the apple might be finding it a bit too shady. Uh-huh. So if apple trees are not in enough sun, they very quickly stop flowering. So right. you maybe need to look at it in that way. 
also if they're if they're drought but i mean you would see drought within the apple through the leaves and whatnot you'd see i mean if it was really struggling because of the eucalyptus i think it's going to be that it's too shady Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's sort of southeast facing and the apricot is southwest facing. Yeah, I, I think that it might not be getting enough light. Uh-huh. And then the mulberry is in the, in the darkest, uh, wettest bit of the garden. So I don't know if that has yeah. caused that problems. James, uh, what's your take on, the, on the, the fruit tree dilemma? I want to bring up the notion of allelopathy and eucalyptus, actually, because allelopathy, as, as I'm sure you know, is, is the idea that, that some plants are so territorial and protective that they will put out chemicals that will stop other things from growing underneath them. And, and the eucalyptus is one of those trees that gets frightfully sort of antsy and says, no, I don't want you growing underneath me. And that's just a possibility. If you plant other trees too close to eucalyptus, that happens on occasion. And as regards the mulberry, I think we're back to a philosophical solution and it, and it is all good things come to those who wait. And mulberries are notoriously long-lived trees that take a long time and you just have to hang on for that one. But just to chuck the fact that the eucalyptus is generally not a nice person to plant other trees nearby. Oh, I, didn't, I knew that about almonds, but I didn't, I'd never oh. heard that about eucalyptus. Nigel? I'd love to pick up on your name. You know, there's a, an issue about nominative determinism, the sense in which somebody's name actually shapes their life. Uh, did you feel drawn to gardening because of your name? Um, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to change my name from Fowler to Flower, though. Ah. Really, deep down, that's what I want to do in life. Well, I just recently learned that my name is an anagram of warning trouble. Oh, <laughs> um, I would just on before we leave, just like to say about the apple that because, you know, it has flowered and then hasn't. So it's it's not that it's too young and it's not ready to flower. So I, I think that definitely the eucalyptus could be your problem. So I think if you can move it and right. it's only been in three or four years, so it sh- you should be able to move it. It would be worthwhile. I also think if you can't move it through this season, give it a good kind of proprietary feed a couple of times over the season with potassium and phosphorus in it because both of those will help to boost up the possibilities of it flowering next year. So um, I would do that. But mostly, I think if you feel you can move it to somewhere else, now's the moment to move it. I mean, clearly not now because we're in summer, but this autumn, move it. Okay, thank you. Well, I was also wondering about compost, having heard the uh, composting programme. Using compost around it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, around all your fruit trees, it's always a really good idea to do an autumn or a spring, depending on how you can get to the trees, mulch with your own homemade compost. It's never going to be a waste. It's always going to bring good stuff to the soil. Good, Lovely. thank you. Thanks very much, Lucy. Right, next up is Jane Green, who emails to ask, I watch with envy as you often write about how easily you can grow celeriac. I've tried three times and failed three times. I have clay soil, well improved with grit and garden compost, a sheltered spot in sun only part of the day. I raised robust seedlings, then planted them out, and while they grew leaf, the roots never amounted to anything but I didn't water them every day. Could this be the problem? Any advice? Welcome. I love to eat celeriac and would dearly like to grow it. I guess this is a question of whether you like celeriac or not. How how desperate are you to... He seems to really love it, doesn't he? Well, celeriac, remoulade is one of life's great things, I think, isn't it? Like, it's such an amazing dish. So I grow celeriac just for that. But the, the true trick with celeriac is understanding that it's Mediterranean-based vegetable in the parsley family and it loves to be hot so the fact that she's only got it in part sun it needs to be a full day of sun 
and you do need to water 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 so the minute that you see the leaves are up and you start to see the root is even vaguely swelling that's when you have to come in and it's a really dedicated game to getting a kind of decent root if you can't be there to water all the whole time what you need to do is mulch with homemade compost or even straw around it something to keep the moisture there because otherwise if it doesn't have enough moisture what it does is because it's a biennial so it'll flower in its second year it just thinks oh well I'll just put down some weedy roots grow enough green stuff so that I can really concentrate in the next year about doing doing my job is so, it true they call it the drama queen of the vegetable world? It, yeah, it, well, I, I could put in a few other drama queens in there. I think that family actually is quite hard. I mean, if you also think about the celery, really not an easy vegetable to grow. The things that people always want to grow when they first start off are always like, you th- you hear people saying, oh yeah, I really want to produce calabrese. And you're like, oh man, really not, not, not in your first year, please no. <laughs> Sounds as if what you really like doing is eating celeriac that you've grown yourself, which might be aiming too high I mean why not just go and buy some if you really like eating it go and buy it I'd, I'd agree because like she did say that you know she does love it and as I talked about drama queen leads you to think it's pretty high maintenance but to be fair to the plant it, it, you know it can speak for itself and all it's looking for like any other queen dramatic or otherwise is a bit of loving and usually comes in the form of as you said decent sunlight and damp soil which um, Jane has deprived it of so um, I think she should take a long hard look at herself in the mirror and pop along to the shops and buy her own <laughs> <laughs> there is there is an interesting question where we have this with wine tasting and and people playing music on rare violins. You know, you get a Stradivarius; it's supposed to sound better, and they do the the blind testing, and actually people can't tell the difference, and sometimes go for a a modern violin above the old one. Maybe there's something about the knowledge that you've grown it that makes it taste better to you, even though objectively there is really no difference. So perhaps it is worth persevering with. I I mean, I think there's a little bit in there in that you can taste your effort. I think that's for sure. Like there is a reward there. But I also do think home homegrown vegetables, because they tend to be grown on less water than commercial vegetables. So they have a higher dense dry matter weight to them. So they actually do often have more flavour. So I would tell her to persevere, but she's just got to do it somewhere sunnier, <laughs> somewhere where she can water more. As the only celeriac eater in my household, I just think if I did grow it myself and was successful, which is doubtful from what I've heard, I'd end up with so much celeriac, I would literally be eating remoulade every night. And oh, I see no, I see no issue in eating remoulade. But it's also a pain, it's a pain to prepare it as well. It's all that knobbly flesh. And yeah, I don't know, I just think if I, if I need a celeriac, I mean, I'm very much into grow your own but I do draw the line at celeriac because I just think that's one of those ones that falls into the more trouble than it's worth category I fell into that category of loads of celeriac and then I was looking for for recipes and I found this one from Rennie Redzepi at Noma that said that if you cook very slowly in butter a whole celeriac for five hours it tastes like meat at the end of it I thought oh my god I've wasted so much energy and butter and you had to constantly pour butter over it endlessly so that it was bathing kind of in this pool of caramelized butter over and over and over and over and over again in the end I served this kind of knotty looking root with browned butter all over it up to my husband he's like we you've been doing that for five hours <laughs> but it just we tastes like butter <laughs> yeah we're well I think Jane should perhaps consider some growing some spuds I think that would just be the best solution here why not now on the line we have Angus Dalton who has a question about slugs hi Angus hello just to quickly fill you in I battle against the normal range of pests on a plot at Beer Ferris which is down in the south end of Devon our soil is fairly heavy clay and I am completely defeated by keel slugs they appear to reserve their attack until the back end of August 
and they arrive especially to hollow out my main crop potatoes. They don't seem to respond to any of the recognised treatments, and until Alice mentioned them all too briefly in a recent article, most experts appear to think they are a bridge too far. I realise that one solution is to lift the crop early, but that um, rather defeats the purpose. So I'd be very pleased to have any advice anyone can give me on what to do about keel slugs. Angus, I don't think you're alone in your slug dilemma. Uh, perhaps we should turn first to Alice. Uh, expand on your keel slug mention for, for Angus. So keel slugs, are, they often don't actually grow that that big, but they're little black slugs and they sometimes have a kind of orange stripe down either side and they live under in the soil, so they're a ground-dwelling d- slug. And their favourite thing in life is potatoes. Um, <laughs> yes, and, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they will eat all sorts of things. So they'll eat any number of roots. But to them, coming across a patch of potatoes is just like this gold mine of delicious, starchy, easy to digest, easy to burrow into. And what they really like to do is to burrow into your potatoes. And it's not till you lift them that you know that. And then they just kind of live in the potato for the rest of the winter, eating it away. So if you put your potato in store and you don't have a really good look over to see you're there, then in spring or later on in the winter when you come to take out your potatoes, you'll find they're just a hollow shell with a lovely, happy kill slug in the middle. And they are notoriously difficult to get rid of. I'm not surprised that you haven't had much luck with nematodes because nematodes are very hard to successfully use because what has to happen is that the ground... So the nematode is an absolutely tiny little thing and it needs to come in contact with the slug in order to lay its eggs in it and and parasitise it. And so unless your ground is entirely wet all the way through so that the nem- the nematode is just going to use the water as a kind of slipstream to move to wherever it needs to go. It literally cannot get anywhere without water. Yeah. So if your soil dries out, even the top surface after watering within the first five minutes, all the nematodes go back into a state of kind of stasis until it comes out again. So nematodes are a very expensive way to try and get rid of slugs. Would there be any benefit in growing potatoes in containers rather than in the bare so- uh, soil, Alice? Yeah, I mean, whenever you have a really big issue in the ground, often the um, the quickest way away from that is to literally move up. And in your case, you could attempt at growing your potatoes in those black bags that professional potato yeah. growers use. But then there's sort of issues with that and that you have to keep watering them and whatnot. I think actually you need to pull back and say, why are there so many kill slugs in your soil in the first place? And the reason why you have so many kill slugs is because you don't have enough predators. And your predators are going to come from all sorts of different places. But one of the ones that you really want to find lots of are ground beetles. And I suppose the question is, do you know if you have ground beetles? Do you see a lot of ground beetles? Do you see ground beetle larvae? No, no, I don't. Okay, so that is now your new dilemma. Is not You're not going to try and eradicate the keel slug. What you're going to try and do is promote more ground beetles. Because when you have ground beetles, they're some of the most voracious eaters of slugs, particularly underground slugs. Um, and the larvae will just go through them at, at a massive rate. And they're really funny when they eat them because they bite into them and just like suck the insides uh, in and they can eat up to 20 slugs a night and they also eat the eggs and they'll eat the slug at any stage which lots of other things won't do so okay. people, um and ground beetles can only exist if they have a good kind of refuge to live in so a ground beetle's favorite sort of place is slightly long grass margins maybe with some 
old leaves and dead leaves. Basically, it's a kind of beetle bank, which they can go and so ground beetles only hunt at night. And so during the day, they want to be able to go back to this cool, damp place where they're not going to be seen. So they can just hang out and have sex and do all the other things that ground beetles do. And then at night, they go off and hunt. And although they will travel great distances, the quickest way to make sure that you have less is to make sure that you have lots of these beetle banks across your allotment so that they're not having to travel far to go and do their work. Okay. As a philosopher, it's really interesting listening to this conversation because uh, I've got lots of friends who are vegans. I try and be vegetarian as much as I can on ethical grounds. But we've all got dirty hands, haven't we? Because you can't grow vegetables. You can't grow crops without killing things. You're talking about how can we best kill these poor little keel slugs, ranging from poisoning them, (laughs) setting nasty parasites to eat them from within, or even getting these giant beetles to come and pull their intestines out. Um, It's pretty gruesome stuff, and it's a really interesting question about how much of life we can enjoy with clean hands. Some people say politics is an area where you can't possibly have clean hands. You have to do dirty stuff to be effective. But a lot of people naively think that by turning vegetarian, they are completely outside of that world of killing and harming living sentient beings. Um, I'm not saying that's an argument against vegetarianism. I actually think there's a strong argument for that. But just it's an argument against naivety about your relation to other living things. Until we can train slugs to stay mainly on our compost heap and uh, break down our rotting uh, compost. I think it's okay to continue to uh, encourage those beetles to tear their heads off and suck their insides out. But what if they were mice mice eating your potatoes or your seedlings or if they're rats or maybe they're badgers that... I get badgers on my lawn that dig up the lawn every night. Now, should I go out and set giant voracious dogs on the badgers? No. Why is it okay to set giant voracious beetles on your slugs? Well, I think that if you take a kind of very holistic look about this, what you do when you create a garden is not create an ecosystem. It's something artificial because you're gardening in it. But the very best way to come to your garden is to put yourself as something within that ecosystem. So at least an equal player to everybody else in there. So I think it's fine to be an effective predator when you're a gardener. But I think it's not fine to then go and use kind of warfare, to use chemicals, to use you know to to use unfair means when you when you take on that that role of being in there because if you want to grow vegetables you cannot just say well the pests can have their lot because you won't have anything to eat so by promoting the ground beetles you you're just promoting more stuff further up the chain right so ground beetles will mean that you have more birds coming to hunt those beetles you'll have more owls and things like that who actually really like fairly decent beetles to eat you you'll have more frogs you'll have everything else and when you have a balance when you have a garden that's really healthy and there's a bit of everything, there's no longer a fight because actually there's always just going to be enough room for everyone. So yes, you might lose some potatoes to keel slugs, but if you don't lose the whole crop, you're probably okay with losing a few as long as you get your share and they get their share. It's only when the balance gets tipped that you start suddenly just trying to sit on top of the pyramid rather than being in the middle of it. Well, perhaps I can interject here with another of our readers who emailed with a slug-related question. And I rather like this because Kyla Mason uh, she emailed with a question about how to keep slugs off her hostas um, and saying she was having terrible problems with them being decimated by slugs and snails Uh, but she also mentioned that her husband had written a letter on behalf of the slugs which I'll just read you a little extract from so you can imagine her husband penning this letter on behalf of Mr S Nail I'll try to do this in a snail's voice Dear Guardian (laughs) I really love hostas and I wondered if you could give me any practical advice on how to get rid of a persistent and highly dangerous pest that is ruining the enjoyment and tranquility of my garden. 
This pest is huge and noisy with large flat feet and wicked pincers that grabs and hurls us poor snails over the wall and far away, which is extremely disorientating and can be fatal. <laughs> so I, ra <laughs> I rather like the thought of this couple, one of whom was on the side of the snails and the other of whom was desperately trying to get rid of them. So... Uh, <laughs> Well, that's good. That balances everything out. It then, balances doesn't it? If we, everything if we have something out. Like that. We've like heard it. from the snail. But I, I would definitely, I would be along the lines of thinking that, you know, we're not going to 100% eradicate these. So yes, if there is some nibbling room there for your slugs or snails to eat some of your plants, that's well and good because, you know, we're bigger than them, we're cleverer than them. Surely we're, we're able to um, win maybe an 80% battle with our spuds or whatever it is that we grow. And I just think that, um, yeah, that's that's kind of okay. Now, they do, they can become annoying. And the first year, the May massacre I had up in my allotment in 2011, I had no idea what I was in for. And I put down every seedling or every seedling was popping up and every single one of them were destroyed by the uh, the slugs and snails. And I just camped out one night, just angry. I camped out and I brought a torch and um, I, I was advised to bring beer. I didn't read on properly and I just drank the beer rather than laying Aww. out the traps. It's kind of, uh, to me, An elementary error. I had to do a rookie mistake big time. But, um, and what I did was I found many slugs and the anger that welled up within, I just placed them all on skewers and kind of... Um, ridiculously put them around the garden to warn other slugs thinking see this is what's going to happen to you see what happened to your friend don't ever oh, come in my patch again very, very macabre and very barbaric but um did it work no it didn't <laughs> <laughs> they, they came back with their armies it was like the 500 arrived the next day and they destroyed my garden everybody beside me as if they uh. listen you can't take us on we're we're billions you're just one guy <laughs> James, has there ever been a, a slug seen on a Chelsea show garden? Has there ever been a moment when the judges are approaching and, and a slug's been spotted? God, that's quite an interesting question. No, I don't think there ever has. Mind How do they keep the slugs off the, off plants at Chelsea then? Uh, they have an awful lot of people who are, who, are, who are paid not very much to remove all slugs and take them outside the borough of Kensington and Chelsea and leave, leave them in Battersea somewhere, uh, where, where, where they range free somewhere near the Battersea slugs home. That's, that's a lovely thought. I know, it's nice, isn't it? I had I, I, it's it's interesting the whole idea of, of of whether you should murder these things or whether you should not. My children used to love it when they were small. They used to go out with buckets and and collect lots of snails. And the reason mostly is is that small children are extraordinarily vicious creatures, <laughs> and they used to think of interesting ways to kill these snails and slugs. And the best one that that they found was I used to have a trailer that had a tipping mechanism on it, and you would pump this handle, and the back of the trailer would sort of winch its way up, and they would then line up the snails on the bit just beneath this the sort of back bit of the trailer and then release it and it would come down with a great thud and then there would be bits of slug and snail all over the place and they used to, to skip off to bed very happy covered in bits of mollusk and then uh, once they got bored of doing that and moved on to moved on to other occupations I just thought well life is really too short to be bothered too much so you plant, try and plant things that, that slugs and snails don't love quite as much as they love hostas and uh, enjoy the fact that there is a thrush beating the hell out of a snail on a piece of stone just outside the kitchen window when i was at garden as well when i was the head gardener we wrote a book the gardeners like a book for our own amusement called 101 ways to kill the slugs because we became so obsessed with different ways and we we came up with everything we you know and we had funny names for them but we had the the kind of uma thurman which is you know when she's punching her way out through um the through coffin, the, the coffin yeah. with her fist and then she goes like she does the fist and a hand up yeah you had to do that over a slug until she <laughs> <laughs> 
So oh my gosh, we're going to bit... get letters about this. We're going to get tweets. <laughs> Hate tweets. But now well, that you have to read out in that slug voice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you like my slug voice. But on the last thing I would say, uh, Angus, because we probably bored you to death on slugs now, is that there is one way to look at any slug in the system, which is that one of the most frustrating things about slugs is coming to terms with understanding that they can see a weakness that you can't. So when a slug takes something out, it's because that plant is weak for some reason and you haven't been able to identify it, but the slug can. And that's what they go for every single time, first time round, is that they're going for weak plants. So in some ways, again, it comes back to this. They're the Zen masters of the garden. You just have to learn to understand that they're teaching you something. That's all very interesting, thank you. Um, To the people who said, do we have to do this? You simply can't grow a crop if you don't compete against the people who are going to eat it because... Running an allotment is all about how do you combat all the different people who fancy your crop. (laughs) (laughs) You talk about the other allotment growers. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) Thanks very much, Angus. Thank you. Thank you, Angus. Now joining us on the line is Helen Evans, who has a houseplant question for our panel. Hi, Helen. Hi. About a year ago, uh, a friend passed on to us a very sad-looking aspidestra. It was enormous and pot-bound. Anyway, my husband, with a gardening spade, cut it into about six different pieces and we replanted it. And we we gave it some really tender, loving care and, you know, some good stuff. And uh, they all revived and looked very good and looked very healthy. And then a friend of mine who was a flower arranger said, oh, um, florists charge a pound a leaf for aspidestras. So I thought, with my eye to business, I thought, oh, I'll take it. So I took my plant to a local florist and she wasn't the least bit interested because it wasn't like her aspidestra at all. Hers was dark green and leathery and strong and stiff, and mine was a much paler green, the same height, but, you know, not not strong-looking like hers. And I just wondered if there's anything I can do to, you know, improve the quality of this aspidestra, or whether it's a different type of aspidestra, I don't know. So you've got your eye on a little sort of cottage business here, producing aspidistra leaves for the florist market. <laughs> I can see a pound a leaf. I can see the attraction. Yeah. Um, are there uh, any of the panel got want to step in here and not well, offer? I us wonder, a... is your friend the uh, flower ranger friend? Is she just jealous of your uh, inheritance of this aspidestra, and uh, she tried to send you down a, uh, a wrong floral <laughs> path of embarrassment and humiliation? Cause it's, no, it's a no. new form of bullying known as aspidistra shaming. We, we need community th- action to tackle so. this. Shame on your friend. That's what I. <laughs> I don't think so because I've been trying to give them away and nobody's <laughs> terribly interested. Alice, are there different types of aspidistra? Could that be the reason? Um, no, I think that what has happened is that because you divided yours and therefore you've given them lots of love and care, what you've done is gone and got a whole new flush of growth and so that, they're, that it's young and it's lush and it's tender and it's light green and that actually over time those leaves will darken and probably toughen up a lot because old aspidistras tend to have dark green leathery leaves and the new growth tends to be much more young and lush also i think that maybe you've been a bit too kind and if you're a bit less kind you probably get slightly more leathery leaves so it's mostly that you've taken something that has lived in a pot all its life and given it freedom and now it's kind of waving around in glory yes Uh, thank you and james i know you can grow aspidistra outside have you ever used it in any of your no i've never used an aspidistra aspidistra is one of those things that i feel is is sort of happiest somewhere dark and slightly neglected where somebody throws water on it occasionally or more likely tips the dregs of a gin and tonic and passing and people use it to put their cigarettes out in (laughs) 
<laughs> and it, it's sort of happy like that. It's, it prefers a sort of slightly seedy pool room atmosphere rather than being brought out into the open and being cosseted. It, it's much happier being neglected. I can't actually see a place or a reason that one would want to grow it outside, but that may just be a taste thing. If you're in a kind of courtyard garden where it's it's kind of not, you don't have bad frost, it's actually a really good plant for under um, very dry shade under trees. Yes, I can try that. Thank you. Yeah. Somewhere, somewhere it's neglected. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> Completely with your thing. Yeah, you've got to be mean to Aspidistus. Yeah. The other question is, did you go to the right florist? If you found well, I only tried the one. Yeah, but she, a... she, she compared mine with hers. Well, that's a very and, conventional um... way of looking at Aspidistra leaves, isn't it? I mean, just one shade works because... I'd have thought florists are interested in what looks beautiful, not just what looks like aspidistra. Yeah, I suppose if you're going to pay a pound a leaf, though, you want... She sells it on for a fiver ago, then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering also whether she's getting her leaves from a, a commercial supplier who's growing she in is, a massive yes. Probably they're house. coming from Holland, yes. Yeah. In Holland, under mm-hmm. very controlled conditions, and that's probably also why they're, they're very, very lush compared to yours. Whereas yours is pure and organic. Well, yeah, oh, right, thank yeah, you. Yeah, maybe you should just remarket it as organic aspidistra. <laughs> yes. Yes. As you two quid for it. As nature intended. Rare, rare. Free range, free range aspidistra. Maybe the florist is growing their own. It doesn't want you getting in there. Oh, this is all possible. Well, I hope that's answered your question, yes, Helen. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. I'll neglect it as much as I can. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So our final question comes from Jocelyn Bennett, who says that she's just bought her first house and she's headed straight out in the garden. Well done, Jocelyn. But she's been digging away and she's added some borders. She she wants to know what she can plant and does she have to plant straight into the existing soil? And how does she go about starting out with this new enterprise? Nigel, a new house, a new garden. Where, Where do you start from a philosophical point of view with this kind of issue? An existentialist would say, don't push the question back onto an alleged or real expert. You've got to choose for yourself because there's so many things you could do. You have to, you're thrown into this new existence in a world without pre-existing flower beds and you have to make your own path through your own garden and not not get somebody else to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'd be overwhelmed. I'd just be like crying in the middle of the garden. Um, That's the the anguish of existence. uh, Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, I say start from the back door. <laughs> okay, is that it? <laughs> Can you expand on that? Great Alice? advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, the thing about having a garden is that you need to live with it for at least a year to understand where the sun falls and where's the nicest place to sit and where's the place where you won't see your neighbours and all of those things to understand where the rain shadows are, to understand, uh, you know, where the frost pockets and whatnot are. So if you start from your back door with some pots, or, you know, or a little border outside your back door, whatever it is, you just start close to the back door and work back because that will give you time to slowly learn about the space and what's going to work best in it. And I think that in your first year, one of the best things to do is to sow lots of annuals because they'll teach you lots and lots about the soil. So you'll learn about the quality of the soil and whatnot. And it doesn't really matter if you don't like your design because next year they're all gone anyhow. And then you can start to sort of slowly build the, um, the design into, into the space. It's also a reflection on yourself, really, as well, isn't it? That, like, um, I, I felt that I was forced into getting an allotment because I only had patio front and back and was um, frustrated with growing stuff in pots. But I wanted it to be somewhat an extension of me and my likes. And I remember somebody said to me earlier on is that 
do something with your garden that makes you immediately fall in love with it. And if it is your back garden, uh, for example, I think the simple thing is if you're going to grow some herbs that you're going to use in your cooking, that you'll have a reason to go into your back garden. Because if you try to do something too big, too intimidating at the start, you'll never go into your back garden and you'll give up and your career as a, uh, a gardener will end there and then. Or even bring a hammock into your garden that you love going into your garden for whatever reason, rather than seeing it as something to do or something to work at, make it somewhere that's enjoyable, I think. And don't, don't, don't feel under pressure to grow too much too soon. There is a sense in which your garden is a way of showing what you'd like to be as well, isn't it? There's a sense that other people are going into it. It's quite public. Just letting it run free implies certain things about you that you might not want to put across. <laughs> it's, it, it's really interesting, that one, that idea of whether you're, it's a pri- private or public space. Um, as somebody who's kind of shared my garden on all sorts of different levels, it, for, first and foremost, though, it remains a really private space for me. That's the reason why I go there. I go to go and have this relationship with nature, which is not controlled because I have a very kind of hippie-free style garden, but is very much done in a way that I go and experience that nature in the way that's best for me. And it's one of these things which I think nobody does enough of, and I really agree with Paddy, which is you should actually go and sit in your garden a lot because it's by sitting in it and just being quiet and being there that you really begin to imagine what kind of space it can be for you. And that you sort of run at it with a kind of, you know, sort of, oh, I need to decorate it like I decorate a house. Then I think you miss all the joy, which is this is a long-term relationship with the garden it's not like a front sitting room you know you don't decorate it in a weekend and then three years later decorate it again this is the rest of your life with this outside space and I totally agree you need to fall in love with the space you need to do that kind of thing that makes you go oh man and then after this I can do that and then after that I can go here and then I'll sit you know in 15 years time I'll be sitting in a shade of a tree and I'm really intrigued if your relationship with the garden is an ongoing thing like this for life how should you treat the garden of someone who's died? I mean, I've, I had this with my mother who enjoyed spending time in a small garden and I felt a responsibility to go back to her house and sort of tend the plants a bit. But we're going to sell the house. It's not going to be an ongoing thing. But there's a sense in which the plants that she planted are still meaningful. Yeah, it's a really um, it's a really tough one because, I mean, when I was started off my career gardening, I would be a jobbing gardener and I'd quite often have to go. I mean, I had a number of gardens where I was keeping a garden in place for uh, someone who, you know, for someone who deceased. So it's a spouse or, or a relative or something. And they were like, this is my mother's garden and I want it to stay the same. And yet we know gardens can't stay the same. So there's, a, there's a, an incredibly poignant and painful thing about memories in that because the garden won't stay the same even if you want it to. My mother always brought me up on this idea that you don't own a garden you borrow it from the next generation and so that all you're doing is leaving the garden in the best place for the next person who takes it on it's not yours to keep it in stone it's not yours to say this is how this garden looks it's yours while you're there and then you leave it in the very nicest space for the next person to go on and that thing about the fact that we we actually do place a lot of importance around memories around plants so I have a garden where I used to, when I was in my 20s, I used to maintain this garden in South London and it was maintained exactly as her husband had left it when he died 50 years ago. And then when she died, I was allowed back into the garden. And for a while, everybody tried to persuade the next owners to keep maintaining it because it was a really beautiful garden. But of course, that was never going to happen. But I'd taken the irises from that garden that really remind me of Mrs. Frankfurt. And every garden that I've owned subsequently, I leave those irises. So I like to think that I'm leaving a little bit of Mrs. Frankfurt across the country. And That's brilliant. I've done so 
something similar in that my, every time I went to visit my granddad, he'd live further up north of Ireland, and he had his prize roses that he told me he had got from his own grandfather. And subsequently, they were passed on to my dad, and my granddad subsequently died. And my dad then gave me a cutting of this rose. And um, it's, I don't know, what's it, we're five, six generations now at this stage. And without ever having to return to his garden, I have now a bunch of those roses up in my allotment and here in my own garden as well. And it'll always remind me of him. So the garden, per se, may have disappeared, but there is this rose, this physical manifestation of a memory that does remind me of him and has kind of passed on his green fingers to me. So I think it's it's taking a little bit of that garden like you do with the uh, irises and spread them around a bit. Yeah, I love the stories that we tell around plants. They're so interesting. There's a, there's the Latin name. There's the kind of the, what you think of the common name is whatever you taught. And then there's this private name that you have for something that represents sort of certain, you know, whether, whether it is a plant that you've taken from somebody else's garden or a plant that reminds you of a certain moment in your life or something that was your first success. So we we have these levels of um, storytelling around plants which I think are really interesting and I I think that's one of the joys of gardening is to to fall in love with it in that way is to build up a living tapestry of moments of your life through the plants you use so there there you go Jocelyn that's a bit of a (laughs) a bit of a backgrounder for you as you head out into your garden for the first time uh, what you can get up to you can you can start a, a legacy Thank you to everyone who submitted their questions for our Ask Alice special. And I'm sorry if we didn't get around to yours, but if you do have a burning question that you'd like Alice to answer in her column, you can email it to askalice at theguardian.com. And it's also worth joining our Facebook group. Just search for Guardian Gardens. And there, many of our members are more than happy to help out with identifying plants or offering advice on your gardening problems. And do let us know what you think of the show by leaving a comment on the podcast page or tweeting us. Our Twitter name is Guardian Gardens gardens we hope you've enjoyed this ask alice special our thanks go to nigel warburton paddy c courtney and james alexander sinclair the producer was alice williams to end this episode and current series of so grow repeat we thought that this song by joe stevenson and dan woods would be rather fitting rap battle gardener versus slug tonight's the night i'm gonna squish your eyes So you come into my hood and you think you own it Eating me spinach the minute I've sown it Ravaging me cabbages, I'm taking a stance You've had your chance But you've blown it, got me copper tape, got me mould and salt You won't get past me unless you can pull for Got me coffee and me eggshell sorted Mission, eat my veggie, cause mission aborted I'm a lord of slugs, I ain't nobody's bitch You're just Yo, is that meant to hurt? I'm gonna climb in your pots, I'm gonna climb up your skirt You give me coffee, you think I'm gonna die? Colombian organic, yet tonight I'm getting high Put salt down, you got no brains? I'm a slug, I'll only come out when it rains When he put them in the garden of Eden You've got no arms or legs, you're absurd You look like your mum stuck two pins in a dog turd You're a freak, better hit the road Lest you want to meet my homie, Mr Nematode You won't forget him if you met him, so you better watch out He's a creature gonna eat you from the inside out So you're sending me a homie, gonna eat me inside Am I gonna go near him? Oh, I can't decide You're a fake, you can't get a lettuce to grow You couldn't even cut up a hole with your hole Adam and Eve, hey, you still believe that? If God made mankind, why do you make yourself fat? This ain't your hood, I ain't no
no disease My people are here when you are just chimpanzees Your face, girl. I ain't no hater. I just can't tell your face apart from a potato. 